0: And welcome to Yesterday in Travel. My name is Brian, and I'm joined as always by Kalina. Hi, Kalina.
1: Hello, Brian.
0: Today, we're discussing the Soviet revolutionary Leon Trotsky's exile in Mexico, his relationship with artists Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, and his ultimate murder by ice pick at the hands of an agent of Stalin's secret police. But first, let's talk travel news. Kalina. (laughs) <laughs> what's going on in um, the world of travel
1: yeah i have a, just a couple of small things the two things we've touched on a couple of times throughout the course of the show the first is this vaccine passport thing and mm-hmm. just to say that hawaii is starting to like think about it pretty seriously mm-hmm. but florida and texas have both decided that they're gonna ban vaccine passports so oh huh? yeah i think that's I don't really know what's going to happen with that but That's
0: an interesting development. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. What does that even mean? I guess they're going to they're not going to It's
1: preemptive.
0: recognize them or they're not going to establish any protocols for them in their state would like
1: I guess or maybe like if the federal government tries to do it they would push back somehow but I don't know. It seems sort of like an empty gesture because there isn't a federal vaccine passport or yeah, it's just an idea right now, but they have they they don't want it. So they're they're against it.
0: Actually, one of the things I was going to talk about was also this Hawaii. Um, so Hawaii is doing a, a pilot, hmm. I guess, just inter island. So among like Hawaiian islanders who are traveling within the islands, you can get you get a passport of some sort. And all you need to show to get the passport is your ID and then that actual that like cardboard card. And are just they're just kind of assuming that, there was a quote, one like the lieutenant governor was quoted mm-hmm. as saying, like, yeah, we assume most people won't try to, like, rig the system. This isn't something that people are going to, like, try to, you know, get around so that we're just going to we're just going to go with it for now and see if it works. So. But, yeah. <laughs> and then they want to, like, if if it's successful, they want to roll it out across the country, potentially mm-hmm. or across To the west coast because they want trans-pacific travel Mm. to be easier and so they want to have this be an option for people coming to the islands from you know west coast mainland USA I just I
1: sense this becoming like the next mask issue where people it becomes politicized and it's so I don't know it's just it's like when I lived in France I had to show that I had vaccines for all these things so it's not like this is a new idea that totally
0: You need to go places. Your kid needs a vaccine to go to like preschool. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And like if you travel to certain countries, you go and get yellow fever and like dengue fever vaccines. Everyone does that. Like when you go to the Caribbean, I feel like. Yeah.
1: And those are actually, I think yellow fever you have to pay Mm -hmm. for as well. Anyway, that's the next big fun (laughs) political Mm -hmm. issue, I think. Yeah. My other piece of travel news is something we talked about like a year ago. And it's not exactly news, it's more, it's it's kind of a hypothetical, but we talked a year ago about how the US and the UK might have a travel corridor and it never happened, but for a while they thought maybe like New York and London could have a travel corridor. And now there's like some talk about the UK is doing really well with vaccine rollout and the US is doing really well with vaccine rollout. So maybe that would make sense that those two countries could create some sort of travel exchange mm-hmm, moving mm-hmm. forward as Europe and, you know, Canada are more behind with, mm-hmm. with all that.
0: Right, right. Cool. It's such a it's such like a it's a constantly evolving situation, you know, like even if there was a court or, you know, it's almost like, Mm -hmm. well, how long will it take to figure out how to even do that? And then by the time they figure that out, are Canada and Europe just going to have caught up and we're all just going to be like, okay, we're all (laughs) like we're at 80 percent. So let's all just drop our guard.
1: Right. Or. Worst case scenario, we figure it out and then something happens to change the game again.
0: Right, yeah. A new variant like this, or whatever. Yeah, a spike um, in somewhere.
1: Yeah. But my friend, my friend in Manchester uh messaged me this morning because like stuff's opening up now in the UK mm-hmm. and everyone's like flooding the pubs, flooding the stores. I read somewhere online that they some pub organization, I guess, thinks that there's gonna be 15 million pints consumed in the next week which is pretty wild. God
0: God bless him. God bless him. That's great. I hope they... It's just insane
1: that that hasn't been a thing. Like in New York, you can still go to a bar, you know, you can even go inside if you're feeling like it, but at least you could sit outside and there it just hasn't even been possible for for weeks weeks.
0: Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, the only other... I had two other things I wanted to mention. One is I saw that in France they approved a ban on domestic flights, on routes that can be covered by a train in under two and a half hours in an effort to lower carbon emissions. So
1: Wait, So that means that if your train would take two and a half hours, but your flight would take 30 minutes, you would have to take the train.
0: Right. So any quick flights, anything where a train could cover it in two and a half hours, they're going to discontinue all those flight routes. Wow.
1: Within the
0: country. Yeah.
1: Huh, that's amazing. That's for the environment that they're doing that?
0: Yeah, they're trying to cut emissions by 40% between 1990 and 2030. And people are worried that it could hurt So The government also very recently recapitalized Air France, the airline, because it's like going, you know, it has no money and it's, it's done even, I think it had no money before the pandemic and is doing much worse. So the government is at the same time, like, pumping money into (laughs) its semi-nationalized air carrier and also undercutting its ability to make money on domestic flights that are short distances. So people are like, that's kind of weird and not like a smart business move. But it's also, Hmm. I think, shows their commitment to Hmm. trying to solve some of the emissions climate stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because isn't like Airbus like a huge French industry as well, like making airplanes? Like, they're always talked about next to Boeing is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that, is that is a French company? Yes.
0: Oh, okay, cool.
1: I mean, it's, it's not. It's like France has trains. Like that's not a
0: right
1: problem. So,
0: but uh, so anyway, I thought that was that was interesting. We'll see how that goes, and, and who knows? You know, it could be something that becomes more common in other countries also as we come out of the pandemic. You know, maybe train travel is more popular, or people are more conscious of emissions and start traveling more by other means as opposed to airlines mm-hmm. um, for short distances.
1: It's interesting because, I mean, train travel technology like has changed, but it, it feels like travel technology is often moving like forward, you know, trains to planes. And this feels like kind of a, a step back towards an older technology, which mm-hmm, is interesting. Mm-hmm. I think riding a train is great. I prefer that to flying. Mm-hmm. Or I, I did when I was living in Europe. It's not so much a thing in the states
0: yeah and i think it's better in europe too i think amtrak is qualitatively worse than a plane in terms of like speed and amenities and like Mm. i don't know just the overall experience but actually that also reminded me i saw this other article i I don't have it pulled up right now but rolls royce is trying to design a new airplane engine that's going to be more efficient Mm. and they claim it's going to like revolutionize emissions considerations for airline travel. Wow. In the future. But huh. I didn't read beyond the, the headline stuff. So yeah,
1: it does feel like we're headed towards a reckoning with like, okay, we had this this mass travel culture two years ago. And that was bad for the world. And in, in a lot of ways, and planes were a huge part of that. And like, can we change how we approach travel?
0: yeah and if you if you search also sometimes i'll be on twitter and just search like sustainable travel and i feel like there has been a proliferation of organizations that are promoting sustainable travel and trying to figure out you know ways for people Mm. to be more sustainable there's more seo enhanced articles about how to travel sustainably and trying to get people to do it but i'm a little bit i don't know if i'm skeptical It doesn't seem like anything has changed in terms of the actual nuts and bolts considerations that people are making. There's carbon offsetting, and if you want to feel good, you can do that. But that's this very intangible thing that you're doing when you travel. And some airlines are like, yeah, we, you know, we were going to pledge to carbon offset this amount. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, and the articles are mostly just like, just be a better traveler, which is like, people have been saying that forever and people aren't being better travelers. Like we can tell it to, we can tell people to like, think more complexly about the world and behave better all we want. But like...
1: There's no strong incentive at the moment, aside from the, you know, fear of a impending doom with the the climate but uh, yeah
0: exactly um Mm -hmm. and the second so the other thing i wanted to bring up was i saw this which at first i thought was just like kind of funny and silly but it's actually kind of cool the tsa has approved full size sunscreen in carry-on bags oh and the reason they're doing this i mean partly it's convenience they're stepping back from these like heightened restrictions after 9/11, when you couldn't, you know, you, everyone mm-hmm. was taking their shoes off, and you couldn't carry any liquids yeah. greater than whatever. But the big push to get them to change this was done by some dermatology physicians at Brown University, who did some studies and found that if people use more sunscreen, it'll reduce skin cancer oh. levels by a certain amount so they like basically use that as like reasoning to say like Americans are traveling and they're traveling to hot places and because they can't bring larger sunscreen bottles they're not using as much sunscreen and it's causing wow. them cancer, skin cancer
1: I'm, I'm amazed that TSA was like okay that makes sense let's change the rule
0: <laughs> I know Let's, like, risk, you know, I don't know what their security concerns are. I don't know who's, like, carrying, like, razor blades yeah. and large sunscreen wow. bottles or whatever, like, plastic explosives. I mean,
1: that's good. I wear sunblock every single day because, I don't know, it's good for you. It's what I've read. But... It is interesting because the sunblock I've brought on planes is like I don't know it's not like enormous, but it's not small either. So I wonder what the size.
0: Yeah, and this is for differences. So this is for check for carry on bags. So in your check bag, you can still bring like your big tub, um,
1: <laughs> your gallon of sunblock. But yes. I guess
0: more and more people aren't checking bags; they're just bringing carry ons. Mm-hmm. So this allows you to carry a full size sunscreen, whatever full sized means.
1: Wow. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. So good news. Just light, light news this week. (laughs) Nothing serious. I feel like
1: we're in this, this moment where like, no one's really sure what's going to happen next. Like things are getting better. Everyone is like holding their breath. Like what's going to happen?
0: Yeah. The calm before the storm. Perhaps. All right. So let's jump to Mr. Trotsky. Yes. Why don't you start off giving us just the basic story of who he is and how he gets to Mexico set us up.
1: Yeah. The basic story that you sort of summarized in the intro is that in 1937, he and his wife go to Mexico City because they were kicked out of the Soviet Union, you know, meet this couple, Diego Rivera and Frito Kahlo, and then he gets assassinated a few years later. I think there's like a lot to unpack. He's basically kicked out of the Soviet Union. And I'm not an expert in Russian politics by any means. But he becomes a political rival of Joseph Stalin's. It becomes untenable for him to stay there. And Stalin exiles him. And he's kind of forced to find a new home. But that's much harder than it sounds after he leaves Russia.
0: Yeah, it sounds like he was first actually exiled within Russia to like Siberia. That's your classic first step when any Russian is exiled expelled from something. Mm-hmm. They first they sent him to Siberia before they go abroad. And then yeah. After that, he and his wife then went to Turkey and they were in Turkey for a few years from 1929 to 1933, then they went to France and then in 1935 they went to Norway and in all these different places they were kind of ensconced in these mansions or housing that was given to them where they were not allowed to leave often they were surveilled by the local authorities in whatever country they were in and also often they were flanked by their own bodyguards trotsky had all these followers around the world and these or you know socialists trotsky organizations especially in the u.s that would send people to protect him but it wasn't a great way to live and he was still being kind of a rabble rouser in some cases. He he, you know, he was writing articles and his writings were getting back to Russia where he was opposing what was going on mm. with Stalin and Russia. But in other cases, like in France, he was asked to leave because he was inciting strikes within France with, by the workers in France. So the French were just like, oh, God, get this guy out of here. And then in Norway, he was isolated in this house but the house was ransacked and vandalized and he and his wife were on a walk so they didn't get hurt but it was kind of a close call and then at that point he had kind of worn out his welcome all over he was applying for asylum in the u.s and other countries in europe and no one was allowing him to come in and that's why he ended up in mexico because mexico actually did say yes we will accept your petition for asylum and off he went and when he went from Norway to Mexico they traveled on an empty oil tanker with a police officer to keep track of them and a captain and that was it and it was just them on this big big oil tanker and it sounded like it was pretty uneventful and he ended up doing a lot of writing on the trip because he was just there was absolutely nothing to do. I read one account that said for new years because they traveled from december into january and so they celebrated new year's on the boat by blasting the horn of the boat a couple times and shooting off like a flare or something (laughs) sounds a little a little bleak and i think All in all, the vibe was a little tense because they were no longer in the sphere of like Europe and Russia, where they had these followers and connection to their international socialist community that had come into being over the many years since the Russian Revolution. So he felt more (laughs) comfortable there. He spoke German so he could communicate. He spoke English and German and Russian, so he could communicate in Europe relatively easy. In Mexico, they didn't know a lot of people. They didn't have that same international support built in, and he didn't speak Spanish. So when they were getting to Mexico, they, they arrived in Tampico which is like a port city on the Gulf side of Mexico. They told the captain that when they were getting to shore, that they weren't going to voluntarily exit the boat unless they saw someone that they recognized and that they could confirm was like an ally. Cause I think there was this paranoia that Stalin was just going to hmm. try to off them at some point, And <laughs> that would be a, probably a good point to try to do it. Well, so well
1: placed paranoia sounds like the end,
0: but yeah, but that didn't happen. He got they, they disembarked and. Frida Kahlo was there and uh, and this other guy from like this US socialist group so friendly faces and so they, they got off in Tampico and they were going to either fly or take the train. And it was bad weather, so they didn't fly. They jumped on this heavily armored oh. train that the president himself actually sent to pick him up. So this wow. was like president's train and they took it to Mexico City. Huh. Wild. So do you want to get into why they decided to go to Mexico City? What was in Mexico City for them?
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Kahlo and... You know, she and Diego Rivera, and, and I, th- I think she's maybe more well-known than he is at this point. I don't know if that's true. I, th- I know her better, but he's obviously very famous in his own right. And if you've been to Mexico City, he has those big murals in the um, was it the Palacio de Bellas Arts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's a, an incredible artist as well. But they're both Trotskyites at this point, which I find really interesting, too, just in terms of framing this within travel, like his brand of communism has spread around the world. and They consider themselves... Supporters of his, they've been part of the Communist Party on and off since the 1920s. By the time he arrives, like, yeah, they're, they're fans. And it's Rivera who who convinces the Mexican president to offer Trotsky political asylum in the first place, which is why they decided to go to Mexico City. They have these these friends and supporters there. And Kahlo and Rivera offer them their second home, Casa Azul, which is now the Frida Kahlo Museum in Mexico City.
0: Yeah, and I think Casa Azul was also Frida Kahlo's childhood home, which she and Diego Rivera purchased after their parents' family no longer lived there. But once they were like wealthy and artsy, famous people, they like bought the house and like made it their Mm. own, their their other house Mm. so they, they could put up. Trotsky well, the,
1: I guess, yeah, what happens once he gets settled in in Casa Azul is that he and Frida Kahlo, Kalo, what do we decide on Kahlo?
0: Whatever you were saying is what I was going with.
1: <laughs> Let's go with Kahlo. So Frida Kahlo and Trotsky end up getting pretty close. And although they're both married, they start a little a little side thing of their own.
0: Yes. One thing to another. I just want to go back <laughs> real quickly because I looked into a little bit of um, the president at the time who allowed Trotsky to... Mm-hmm to come there. And I was a little bit like, well, why is everyone else saying, no, we don't want Trotsky here. But Mexico is like, yeah, you know, Diego Rivera goes to the Mexican president and is like, Hey man, I'm a Trotsky. Mm-hmm. I love this guy. You should let him in. And it actually turned out the president at the time was a socialist and mm. Mexico was quite socialist leaning at the time. They were going through all of these land reforms and they were nationalizing the oil company and they were, they had had a revolution from like 1910 to 1920, they had had fighting between all the owner people um, after this dictator had been in power for like over 30 years. And they were trying to sort of like creeping towards more of a constitutional sort of democracy where there's like regular standardized transfers of power. Um, and this guy was a relatively popular socialist president. So he was happy to bring this prominent socialist over um, from Europe and, and allow him to be in the country. And apparently when they, he arrived, they it was like party time for the first week. People, international socialists of renown, were coming down to visit Trotsky. And he they were like drinking and partying up and having a good time. And... It was sort of joyous because I think after this boat trip and after so many years of being also being sort of in these other countries, exiled in these countries that didn't really want him, he finally felt freer in Mexico to kind of loosen up a little bit. He was like Mm. physically had distanced himself from Europe and all that. But also within that sort of environment, he starts this There's this sort of flirtatious relationship that starts up. Mm -hmm. He and Frida Kahlo start romancing each other. She's younger than him. She's 29 years old at this time, and he's 57. But she recently was kind of burned because she found out that Diego Rivera had cheated on her, had 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 affairs that she found out about. So there may be some element of revenge, jealousy Mm -hmm. here. With with Um, her
1: sister, right? yeah
0: yeah with her that's right i forgot with her sister (laughs) um which that's a big detail (laughs) and trotsky is i don't know i don't know much about trotsky i'm sure he was a flanderer like everyone but he would slip her love (laughs) notes in these books that he would give to her and he would like he would even give her these books like in front of his wife and in front of Diego Rivera. Like he was thinking he was like slick, mm. like he would like hand her that he'd be like, Oh, I would think you should read this book. Wow. Especially page fifty-three, <laughs> you know? So oh, they God. were doing their thing and it was kind of in broad daylight. Uh and and his wife found out about it, Natalia who had been with him this whole time Mm. throughout all these trials and tribulations. So she was upset, not having it. Um, It was a brief romance.
1: Yeah. So they, their relationship ends in July of 1937. So that's only a couple of months after he's arrived. It's a kind of a short lived affair, but she does paint a self portrait, one of her self, self portraits, which she dedicates to him. And in it, she's holding a piece of paper that says to Leon Trotsky with all my love. This is after the affair. So that's they seem to be still close. But yeah. interestingly, Kahlo and Rivera become Stalinists in 1939. Trotsky's Trotsky's enemy. And following that, in May 1940, there's an assassination attempt on Trotsky's life, a pretty dramatic one. Someone drives by with a machine gun and, and shoots up his place, but he survives yeah. remarkably. And, this is... and
0: he's not living at the Casa Azul at this point, mm-hmm. right? He's, I think so, yeah. Aside from the affair ending, he also sort of is, because Kahlo and Rivera are Stalinists, they're like distancing themselves from him. And he gets his own, he gets a, a house in Mexico City, but he's no longer living sort of in a, any of their properties.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, the guy who tried to kill him this time, Sequeros, how you say his name? Well, he's he's another, like Rivera, he's a famous Mexican muralist an artist who also happens to be an agent of Stalin's secret police and is sent on this mission to, to kill Trotsky. It sounds like a great movie. I don't know if they've done a movie about all this intrigue about Stalin's secret police in Mexico City, but sounds cool. I'd watch it.
0: Yeah. And actually the one person who does get a little injured in that one is his grandson. So he's got his son eventually joins him in Mexico, and his son's children he has a grandson who's there. And the grandson actually gets shot in the foot mm. by this in this first attempt Wow, but the second attempt is the one that actually gets him so in August a few months later, this guy named Ramon Mercader, who is has sort of years earlier, like this is this plot, like two years earlier, this guy Ramon Mercader had befriended this woman who was a socialist layabout, didn't know what to do with her life in New York City and Ramon Mercader ingratiates himself to her and through her meets Trotsky and then in Mexico but under an assumed name also he's got he's like undercover and then in Mexico he convinces her to come down and work for Leon Trotsky at his house and like be part of his I don't know entourage (laughs) and And then he, under a different assumed name, becomes like is her boyfriend or something and and comes and goes from her place and becomes a familiar face at, at the Trotsky compound. And so one day he just shows up in August of 1940 with an ice pick under a coat that he's got on his arm and goes into the study and attacks him doesn't get a direct hit, kind of either misses or somehow like doesn't hit him hard enough with the pick. And so Trotsky is very much still alive. And he turns around and starts wrestling with this guy. He supposedly spits in his face. And in the ensuing scuffle, he breaks this guy Ramon Mercader's hand. Mm. And at that point, Mm. bodyguards come in, they wrestle this guy to the ground, and Trotsky mm. eventually dies. He bleeds out. Uh, he, there, he's taken to the wow. hospital, but he he dies of um, desanguination. I think is the
1: uh, yes. term.
0: Yes. And wow. is there uh, is then put on trial. He serves twenty years for the murder. He's he's convicted, so he goes to jail. But he he never reveals who told him to do it. Although it's assumed that he was that it was set up by Stalin Mm -hmm. because Stalin awarded him the order of Lenin, which is like the highest civilian award that you can get in the Soviet Union. So that's kind of a giveaway. Yeah. And then when he comes out of jail, he moves to Cuba. (laughs) Wow. Which is just perfect.
1: (laughs) It is perfect for our purposes.
0: So, but you have some theory about the ice pick or.
1: Well, I have a couple of interesting details about this guy and the ice pick after Well, there were a couple of things that I found while researching this. One was, why did he use an ice pick? And I guess his Soviet handlers were like, well, you can't use a knife. That's too loud. A dagger won't do the job fast enough. He'll scream and you need to escape and you'll get caught. So use an ice pick. One like good hit should just should end it. And obviously that didn't Mm -hmm. work out. Trotsky did fight back. And actually the grandson was there for this murder Mm -hmm. attempt as well. He was like, he walked past the room and Trotsky was like, get the boy away. Don't let him like see it. And he always remembered this like traumatic thing, Whoa. obviously. But the ice pick itself was then taken to the Mexico City like police it was put in an evidence room. But then a police officer checked it out because he wanted to preserve it for posterity. He said, and he gave it to his daughter, and she kept it under her bed for forty years. And then in two thousand and five, she tried to sell it, Crazy. and I think it was the same grandson. But one of one of Trotsky's ancestors came forward and was like, "You shouldn't sell it. You should like donate it to like a museum, and I'll I'll provide my DNA." just to, like, make sure it really is the ice pick. And and the daughter was like, no, I want to I wanna sell it. I want to get something for it. So she sold it. Mm-hmm. I, it is now in a museum, I believe, somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think maybe in London or something. Then the assassin was, like you said, put in jail. But the Soviets took good care of him. They, like, sent him money. They made sure he had a girlfriend who later became his wife. And then when he dies in Cuba, his last words are, I hear it always. I hear the scream. I know he's waiting for me on the other side. Which I think is super creepy and uh yeah yeah that's all it's my background of the ice pick
0: yeah i thought it was interesting one one thing to tie this all this crazy story of romance and mayhem and intrigue back to travel it's it's kind of an interesting example of the way that socialism really was became this international Movement that tra- itself like traveled across borders, and Trotsky was really into this idea that I and I know so little about this, but. One of the differences, I think, between Trotsky and Stalin's split was partly over the fact that Stalin wanted to consolidate socialism within the USSR. And Trotsky thought of socialism as something that they had to export and they had to kind of like... They needed it to grow in countries that were actually more economically developed Mm. than Russia, because in Russia, the economy was so piecemeal across this like vast land that there it was harder to organize the proletariat to rebel against the bourgeoisie. And he thought that actually, if you could get this international socialist movement going in countries in Western Europe and in the United States, that you could actually achieve the goals that you were hoping to achieve. And that if you kept it within the Soviet Union, like Stalin wanted to do, it would rot itself out through bureaucracies. And he was arguing what was happening in Russia, which I think was somewhat true, at least at the time, like Stalin was becoming this despotic ruler who was like, the country hmm. was being mismanaged and like he was just killing huge swaths of people and, mm-hmm. and it was all kind of going to hell. And so that was kind of interesting. And Trotsky did also end up being this yeah. like international ambassador for it, traveling all over in his exile, kind of like pushing the movement to different places.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. How an idea can spread around the world. I wonder how, you know, this was long before the Americans started interfering more and more in like Affairs in Central America and South America, but I wonder what they thought about mm-hmm. him coming to Mexico City because it's like the the U.S. had a socialist movement as well and a communist movement around the same mm-hmm. time. And I wonder if they were like watching him and be like, hmm, this is not good news, like, or what if there was any thought about him at the time. I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was certainly a lot of these people that were going down to party with, with Trotsky when he first showed up and the, the guy that accompanied Frida Kahlo when they got off the boat mm-hmm. to meet them in Tampico was this American and was a a member of sort of the socialist these socialist organizations in the States, which were pretty prominent, like pretty large in terms of membership at the time. And so there was lots of American representation coming down to hang out with Trotsky. And I'm sure the U.S. was a little bit, you know, was observing and monitoring Mm. all of that.
1: I'm trying to remember when Eugene Debs ran for president, who I think was a communist. And he was like, I think he was thrown in prison (laughs) for doing that. But I think that was Mm -hmm. around the same time or a little bit before. Yeah, And this was
0: also like in the throes of the depression. So the world was a very Mm. unstable place generally. So I think there was certainly fears that this movement, like these, I think the roots of the paranoia in the United States around Socialism spreading in Latin America start probably around like the 30s and 40s in the Depression era, mm. and then like, and that's why in the 50s and 60s and 70s you see um, more overt attempts to overthrow governments and whatnot. Mm.
1: Interesting. The other thing that I think you mentioned when we were talking about this before is how how his family just became basically Mexican after living in Mexico City, right? Like they they spoke Spanish, they became sort of culturally, yeah. From Russian to Mexican, I
0: love that. I love that. Like, I mean, it's a tragic thing that happened, but in the end, this grandson of Trotsky's, who was interviewed, he's there's these video clips you can find of him being interviewed on Mexican TV. He's just an old Mexican man. I mean, his name, he's still his first name is Esteban, which is like a Spain Spanish-sized name, his birth name is something Russian, but his Mm. speech, his vocabulary, his intonation, he's He's essentially grown up in Mexico his whole life. And they were cut off from Russia. I mean, part of why he initially, when he was initially exiled more from the socialists, from the government in Russia, before he was like really kicked out of the country, they they basically told everyone in his family that they all had to leave. And then when they mm. when they did leave, they took away their citizenship. So none of the Trotsky family could ever really go back to Russia. So yeah, they all... I mean this grandson stayed in Mexico. I wonder where the others ended up. But yeah.
1: That yeah, is cool. It's kind of like, you know, people just adapted to anything.
0: Totally. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was funny is that like Trotsky is this historic figure who is larger than life and his associations are with the Russian Revolution and yet his family now have nothing to do with Russia at all they are Mexicans it's as if like George Washington's great great grandchildren like lived in Madagascar Mm -hmm. and were just like not had nothing to do with (laughs) the US you know right
1: yeah yeah what a story
0: the world is a crazy place it
1: is always changing well I think
0: think that's it it. that's the story (laughs) anything else to add any other uh, good I don't think so.
1: I, I I love, I love that this story is so different from other things we've talked about. Just Mm -hmm. it's such a spy political, like thriller of a story and, you know, travel is a big theme, but it's so just a wild story and it's a good, it's a good note to end on.
0: Yeah, that's true. And we should mention that we are finishing up this season with this episode so this is going to be our last episode for a little while, but we will be back soon. So we'll leave it at that. Thank you for listening. And as always, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Yesterday in Trav. And uh, we'll be posting stuff about... The next season up there.
1: Yeah, and you can always email us with feedback or episode ideas. Which, as we start thinking about what's what's going to be the next season, you can always use episode ideas. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe in the feed. So, thank you for listening, and we'll be back with more soon-ish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> soon-ish. Yeah. Bye. Bye.